I want to start off by thanking everybody that helped out while Ambika and I were out of town. We really appreciate it, and it's good to be part of a church there where we know that you're going to be taken care of, <laughs> and uh, it's good to have everybody pitching in from Ken and Kai to Rudy and Bob and the worship team and everybody that helped out. We really appreciate you, and um, we don't ever want you to forget that. But we find ourselves back in the book of Second Thessalonians. Uh, you know, this past week, uh, it's been an interesting week. I had um, getting used to the time again and everything, and we're getting over a little cold. And, and on Thursday, I was able to fly down to Southern California, pick up my grandson Mason, bring him up, and, and his sisters are going to be joining him this week here, and, and then they're all going to be going back to Idaho in a week or so. But uh, as I was getting ready for Thursday, I thought, well, I got to get everything in order. So got my ticket and got my Uber scheduled because my wife was sick. So Uber showed up at 11 o'clock. My flight boarded at 12 or took off at 12.55. So it boarded around 12.25. And I always fly out of San Jose to Burbank. I just always do for the Shepherds Conference, for anything, because it's just a, usually it's cheaper and it's quicker. And, uh, but I had to be there at a certain time because Mason had some tests and everything. So I ended up uh, in San Jose Airport. Luckily, I have that clear thing where you, you go to clear before you go to the security, right? So I didn't have any bags, just a, my, my backpack. And so I go right up there and I'm thinking, okay, I'm on time. This would be great. You know, and I get up there and pass the clear thing. And she goes, can you scan your boarding pass? I'm like, sure, you know, no problem. And by this time, it's like 1130. And trying to scan it, it's not scanning, it's just this red, you know. She goes, can I see it? And I go, sure. She goes, "Uh, sir, you're at the wrong airport. (laughs) Because of the time factor, I I scheduled it out of SFO to Burbank. (laughs) Just never looked at the ticket. So I'm panicking kind of a little bit, and I'm thinking, okay, at least I didn't have to go through the whole security thing. You know, I didn't have to go up there and wait. And I'm looking at the clock, and it's like 11.35, and I'm like, yeah, this is going to be tight. But so I went out, ordered another Uber. Nice Indian gentleman picked me up, told him, I said, nice tip if you get me to the airport quickly. He goes, sir, you're already at the airport. I go, I know, but I'm at the wrong one. (laughs) Don't rub it in. So off we went to SFO, and luckily it was on a Thursday, not a Friday, and uh, got there about 12.05, and didn't have to do anything, went right through security, breezed up, got to the gate. 20 minutes in advance, so it was interesting. I was praising the Lord the whole time and got to go to the restroom before I got on the plane and got lined up with all the other cattle and, and we're ready to board the plane and get up there and I guess they switched it to where you hold your phone up, up, right side up, not down. I didn't know that, so I'm trying to see. He's like, sir, you need to turn your phone over. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, this is the way you turn your phone over. So I turned it over and I scanned it. I heard it beep, and I'm already, you know, I'm just in this frenzy, right? So I'm like 10, 10 steps down the road, and he's yelling at me, sir, sir, they didn't go through. And I'm like, oh, man, come on. So I come back, try to do it again, and the guy was very patient. And I was early in the boarding, so everybody's behind me, right? So I'm standing there, and the, the gentleman goes very calmly. He goes, do we need to call Kaiser for you? And I'm like, is it that obvious? I'm that stressed out, right? And he goes, because we can, we can call a doctor or whatever. And, you know, and I keep on trying to scan this stupid thing. And he goes, sir, you're scanning your Kaiser card. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I'm sorry, and I apologize. So I bring up the right pad, try to do it. I'm thinking, there, it beep. And you know, it didn't go through. So I'm like, I just gave him the phone at that point. I said, I'm done. I had a really rough morning. Just scan it for me and get me on the plane. But I was able to get down there. We were able to get back the same night. And so we, it was just an interesting week, to say the least. But, um, you know, to this morning, I want us to turn our hearts to Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians chapter two, and remember we, we finished chapter one, and we was really talking about the revealing of the coming of the Lord. And today we're just going to introduce this because of time. We had communion. We had the the, the Bible uh, teaching this morning uh, with the Bibles, and and so we're just going to introduce our outline this morning. I don't know how far we'll get. We'll go to about eleven thirty and knock it off. But um. The one thing that I want you to understand as we approach this text of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, this is um, a, a difficult text. There's a lot of good men that disagree on the interpretation of this text, on eschatology in general, all right? And they're still believers. doesn't make them non-believers because we disagree on things like this. But the Lord has really um, taught me a lot of interesting things getting prepared for this study. And so I'm, today we're just going to kind of lay the foundation, and then next week we'll really get into it. But um, this is a study for the next several weeks, and it's going to be fascinating, I guarantee. You don't want to miss a Sunday, because if you do, you'll probably be way behind. It's going to be fascinating, but it's also going to be challenging. So you don't want to come in here Sunday morning having stayed up till 3.30 a.m. Okay, you want to come in with your heads together, your mind ready, equipped to receive the teaching of the Word of God because you're going to get lost real quick if you don't. And so it's a teaching both for our hearts and our heads that, are, that will prove to be challenging. Um, and Paul here presents to us this coming individual, the main character in the text here is Antichrist, the Antichrist. He begins to speak about the Antichrist. This is the most devilish, the most wicked, the most destructive, you could say, individual who ever, ever, listen, walked the face of the earth. This is who Paul is describing. No one even pales in comparison. The Bible calls this individual the Antichrist. He is basically the combination, the culmination, whatever you want to say, of all the, the, the false prophets, of all the satanic false prophets that have come and gone, all the, the false teachers, all the hypo, hypocritical liars, all the false Christs that will arise. He is all those in one individual, wrapped up in one, the sum total of all the wickedness that the world has ever seen, will be in this one individual. And the Antichrist here is the theme in which Paul is writing. I'm glad we got through chapter 1, talks about the, the coming of Christ, right, and his judgment. I think he should come first before the Antichrist. And, and then Paul introduces us to this man of lawlessness, as he's called, in chapter 2. And so we want to read these verses, and, and I'm going to read the, the entire chapter just today, just because we're not going to get all through all this, obviously, but just as a way of introduction. And so um, 
you've been sitting for a little bit, so why don't you stand up in honor of God's word and just follow along in your Bibles. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll just read the entire chapter. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy, unless the rebellion, unless the departure, you could say, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, we ask you to bless this passage to our scripture even though we're just introducing it today, we pray that in the coming weeks we would come to understand exactly how this applies to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Like I said, we're only going to get through our introduction today because I, I, I just think it's so important to lay a proper foundation if we're going to enter into this um, weighty section of Paul's letter. Uh, in our text, if you look at the text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you notice that Paul doesn't even really introduce him until verse 3, and there he's called the man of lawlessness, this antichrist. He calls him the son of what? Destruction. 
And then you jump down to verse 8. He calls him that, that lawless one. You can kind of get a theme here. He's not really very appreciative of the law. <laughs> In verse 9, it says the coming of the lawless one is, is by the activity of Satan. In other words, he is literally empowered by Satan himself. And then it says, in all power and false signs and wonders. It's amazing to me how Christians are so easily impressed by someone who claims to do a sign or a wonder. They just fall all over the place, literally. <laughs> He's known throughout Scripture, this Antichrist, by several names. They're there in your outline. He's the Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshesh, and Tubal in Ezekiel 38. In Daniel 7, throughout the text, he's called the little horn. He's called the prince who is to come. Daniel 11, he's called the king who does as he pleases. Zechariah calls him the foolish, worthless shepherd. Revelation refers to him as the beast. In our text, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the lawless one, the one who does the activity of Satan. And then in 1 John chapter 2, he is literally called the Antichrist. The Antichrist. All these are titles, if you will, for one individual, the Antichrist. One person, a singular person. But there's also today in the world, I think that we would agree whether the Antichrist, the Antichrist could be alive right now. But we're going to tell you how and when he will be revealed. He's not revealed yet, obviously. But I think besides the individual, there's also the spirit of Antichrist. There's an attitude of Antichrist. We see that all over the world even now, don't we? If you don't believe me, just go out and start, <laughs> just start speaking the name of Jesus. Start speaking the name of Christ, you'll see the Antichrist spirit very quickly. And I think every individual throughout the history of the world who under the power and the influence of Satan is against the work of God and is against the work of Christ really is emboldened, is empowered by the spirit of Antichrist. We could say that. Look over at 1 John. 1 John, a little letter there toward the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 2. Look all the way down, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. What, what does he mean by this? He means that it's, this is the, the messianic error. This is, since the time of Christ, we've been living in the last hour. And he says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so apparently there, there was a lot of teaching going on about Antichrist, right? But John says, so now many Antichrists have come. They're already here. So there's this individual who will come in the future who will be the culmination, the combination of all the people who have 
been under the spirit of Antichrist throughout history. And it says, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now look down at verse 22. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Then he says, this is what? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist is someone who sets himself as opposed to the work of God, to the work of Christ. And he's saying here, anyone who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I don't believe that Jesus is God. You're under the influence. You're under the power of the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what John is saying. Anyone who would deny the connection between the Father and the Son, that Jesus Christ is literally God, is Antichrist. Now you think about a lot of religious people who are part of what we call cults, very nice people, very helpful people at times, but they're under the influence of the spirit of Antichrist. Down in 1 John 4, 3, He says, in every spirit that does not confess Jesus, he drills down on this, this is how important it is, is not from God. And then he points out, this is why I said it's the spirit, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So even though the Antichrist may be alive today, he may not, we don't know. We don't know when he's going to be revealed, but we know he will be revealed. And we're going to be telling you how he will be revealed in the coming weeks. But the Antichrist is an individual. He's someone who is God-denying. He's Christ-denying. He's a counterfeit. He appears to be a religious leader who, while hating everything that God is about and hating everything that Christ is about, he actually lifts himself up as Christ. He pretends to be Christ. But until he comes, there are many like him who are under the influence of his spirit. This wicked, evil spirit. In 2 John, just a page to your right there, in verse 7, the Apostle John says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. How do you know if they're a deceiver? He says, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those are people who say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, we believe that he existed, but, you know, was he really God? He says, such a one is is the deceiver and the antichrist. He's under that spirit. He's under that influence. So you can see here that this, this one who's coming, this ultimate man of sin, lawlessness, perdition, son of destruction... He's under the power of Satan. And this final Antichrist, even though there's many Antichrists, the final Antichrist will be one of the wickedest, most vile people that has ever walked on the face of the earth. Worse than all of them. You think in the biblical literature, we have Antiochus Epiphany, who, what he do, he, he went into the the, the Holy of Holies, and he slaughtered a pig. <laughs> Defaced it. Blasphemed God. 
you think of people like Adolf Hitler who mocked God, blasphemed God. A lot of people believe that he was under definitely demonic influence. He tried to rub out all the Jews, kill all the Jews. You say, well, he was pretty bad. He, he doesn't even hold a candle to the Antichrist. Nothing. Think of all the other crazy religious tyrants and, and leaders of countries who were Saddam Hussein, whoever, Osama bin Laden, all these people. They, they don't hold a candle to this. This term Antichrist, Antichristos in the original language, it's, it's a combination word. It's, it's a word that's two words that are put together. We understand what anti means, right? It means you're against he is anti-Christ, Christos. He is against Christ. But you can also translate this in the place of someone. So even though he's against everything that God stands for and everything that Christ stands for, and he's trying to, throughout history, destroy it, and we're going to see that in a moment, he's also saying, I am the Christ. He's not the true Christ. He's the Antichrist. But he comes across as the Christ with all his power, with all his miracles, to the point where many people will follow him. He is against Christ. He puts himself in the place of Christ. He is, is really, you could call him a satanic liar who replaces Christ in his mind. That's what he thinks he's doing. In the Gospels, several times, the writers call him pseudo-Christ, pseudo-Christos, false Christ. And we know that the Bible tells us that these false Christs will arise. They're, they're arising all around us, even now. So John said, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. John is writing to believers. He's writing to believers, and he's saying that you heard this. You already know that the Antichrist is coming. It's not a surprise when he said this. They didn't say, what? We never heard this before. No, they've been taught this. This was common knowledge among believers because it was so important that they understand it. Now, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 5. It's interesting that not only does John remind his readers, hey, you know what, you already know this because I've already taught you this. But look at what Paul says in verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, what does he say? I already told you this. I've already explained this to you. You already know this. This isn't something new. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? What things? The things about the lawless one, the things about the, the, the man of the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. So he says exactly what John said to his readers. You already know about this. You've already heard about it. You already know that the Antichrist is on his way. He's coming. And in the meantime, you have to deal with the spirit of the Antichrist because there's many people who raised up among us that are just being blasphemous against the things of God and they're attempting to substitute themselves for him. 
They knew that the Antichrist spirit had been at work among them. They also knew about the future of the Antichrist because Paul had instructed them about that. So John says you know about it. Paul says you know about it. He's been at work for a long time. And you say, well, how long? How long has the spirit of the Antichrist been at work? It didn't start when Christ was born. It started way before that. And if you go back in the Old Testament, the first place you really see this massive effort of this Antichrist spirit is in Genesis 6 where there's an effort by demons to create a demon human race and it seems that somehow they thought if they could somehow create this demon human race uh, they could create people who were unredeemable because angels, demons are not redeemable, they can't be saved And what did God do when these angels violated their space and came down? He basically, what? Drowned everybody. (laughs) That's how serious it was. He said, I can't allow this to continue. So that's where you have the flood. Massive flood. Noah and his family, the only ones spared. The whole civilization was drowned. Everything. And then following that, that was caused by the spirit of the Antichrist. In Exodus, we know the story of where all the, the, the male children in Israel, back in, in Exodus, Satan was trying to destroy all the male children. Why? Because he didn't want the messianic line to continue. And so he thought, I'll just snuff them right out at the root. That way there will be no messianic line. Later on, Satan, in an anti-Christ spirit effort, tried to break the royal line, which would ultimately bring the Messiah. We see this over and over again. In 2 Chronicles chapter 21, he tried to break the royal line by using uh, Jehoram to kill all of his brothers. Just kill, all the, kill them all off. And the royal line got down to one individual. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. If that one individual had been snuffed out, there would be no royal line for Christ to be born to. Fortunately, that one individual had sons before he lost his voice, his life, so the royal line continued. But then in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, you see where the Arabians came to the camp and they massacred all the sons. <laughs> Once again, the spirit of Antichrist. I don't think these people really understood what they were doing. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Massacred all the sons except one. And once again, the the royal line hung on one life. Ahaziah. And he took the throne. He ruled only one year. And he was wickedly counseled by his mother, who was just a vile woman. Her name was Athaliah. And finally, he was wounded severely, and his life hung in the balance And with his life, all the messianic and saving hope hung. But he lived. He lived. He was later killed in a war with Jehu, but not until 2 Chronicles 22 says that he had more sons. See how close it gets? I mean, it gets right down to one life. And the spirit of Antichrist thinks, hey, I got it. I got it. We're going to wipe these Jews out. We're going to... 
get rid of this. Doesn't stop there. And then there was the Antichrist action taken against the people of God during the time of Ezra. Ezra tells us how the people of Israel were saved by the fact that a a pagan king couldn't sleep one night and he uncovered a plot to wipe out all the Jews. Crazy how God works sometimes. And instead of destroying the line of Christ, it once again was preserved by the hand of God. And then we mentioned Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of Syria, who during the instrumental period was trying to wipe out all the Jews and he failed because of the Maccabean revolution. They stood up against him. And then you think after Christ is born, you have Herod, definitely under the influence of the Antichrist spirit, tried to to kill all the baby boys, (laughs) trying to figure out when the Christ was born so he didn't want any competition from this king who was going to be the king of the Jews. So he killed all these children in an attempt to kill the Messiah. But God preserved it. And then came the people, or Satan himself came to Christ, remember that, when he's in the wilderness, tempted him, trying to thwart his work, trying to take his effort and run it off the rails by tempting him. But Christ saw it through. And then even the people of Nazareth who tried to shove him over a cliff, tried to murder him. And then it gets right down to even amongst his own, his own disciples, right? Because you remember what happened with Peter. Remember what happened with Peter? You're not going to the cross, Jesus. I'll never let that happen. And what does, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me who? Satan. He was under the influence of that Antichrist spirit. Anything to thwart, to run off the rails, the work of Christ concerning salvation. And then even after that, you had the Romans who killed him, killed Christ, and they put him in a tomb with the seal of Rome on it. They said, there's no way that body's coming out of there. (laughs) And we just celebrated that, right? The resurrection of Christ. So this Antichrist spirit has been going on and operating for a long, long, long time. But in the last days, Paul says, Antichrist, not just his spirit, but Antichrist himself will show up. The man who is Satan's final combination of all the wickedness and evil in the world. John said you'll know about him. Paul says you know about him. But Paul says, you know what, I got to tell you more here in 2 Thessalonians. Now you'll wonder why, (laughs) I mean, he just talked about Christ coming, chapter 1, as well, this is going to be great. And then then all of a sudden, he goes into this thing about the Antichrist. And it's like, wow, what what are you talking about, Paul? Why are you bringing this up? With these, with these folks? Why does he just start in on the Antichrist? Well, this letter, and we told you this already, 2 Thessalonians has how many chapters? Three, right? We've already been through the first one. We know what that is. The first chapter of 2 Thessalonians is to comfort them. Why? Because of all their severe punishment, persecution, they were going under. They were being 
persecuted continuously for being Christians. And Paul wanted to write them, and he does in verse 1, and we already talked about that. He wanted to, to encourage them, to console them, you could say. And so chapter 1 is to comfort those who are going under severe persecution. But as good as this church was, I said it wasn't perfect, remember, from the beginning. They were a very good church. They were a model church, but they weren't perfect, and they had some issues. And if you jump ahead to chapter 3, you see some of the issues. And what are the issues? The issues basically are, are simply that they are unruly. <laughs> There's some insubordination going on in the church. They're not coming under the teaching of Christ or the disciples. They weren't being obedient you would say, Christians. Uh, Verse 6 tells us that some of them are walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Right? They They were unruly. They weren't paying attention to what they were told to do. They were undisciplined. Down in verse 11, he says they were not only undisciplined, um, but they were, they were he, I think he calls them uh, busybodies. <laughs> in other words, a busybody is somebody who's just uh, kind of up to no good, right? They're just in everybody's business. And... So chapter 1, severe persecution. He wants to give them comfort. Chapter 3, severe insubordination. And he wants to give them correction. Well, what is chapter 2 about? That's where we're at. What's chapter 2? What's going on here? Well, you could, you could say here, it's not severe persecution, it's not severe insubordination, but it's really severe confusion. They were confused. They were severely confused about what? About their eschatology, about what happens in the end times. And you're probably sitting here this morning, wait a minute, didn't we just go through 1 Thessalonians? What did we talk about in 1 Thessalonians? eschatology. What do we talk about in chapter 1? Eschatology. Now mind you, these letters that are written are written from the pen of Paul to this small church and you know, it's not like years in between the first letter and the second letter. You're, you're probably talking maybe months, maybe months, if not weeks. Well, why are they confused? I mean, he just taught them all this stuff. He said, haven't I taught you this? What are they confused about? Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. What is that? That's the rapture that he talks about in 1 Thessalonians. The coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. That snatching away to the clouds of the church from the face of the earth. He says, we ask you, brothers, look at verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. What's he saying? He's saying, get the confusion out of, out of, between your ears. Clear, get a clear head. I've already taught you all this stuff. Why are you confused? Why would they be confused? Well, he tells us. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. And then in, at the end of verse 2 there, he says, uh, not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by, listen, a spirit or a spoken word, right? How does heresy spread in the church? It spreads by people who are empowered by an antichrist spirit, I would say. 
They're, they're seeking to divide the church. They're think, seeking to destroy the church. So they come in and they don't say, hey, I'm here and I'm under the power of the Antichrist and I want to join your church. No, they don't do that, <laughs> right? They come in very unknowingly. We learned this in our Bible study through the book of Jude on Wednesday nights, right? How quickly they just came into the church, these false teachers. And so Paul writes the Thessalonians here and he says, hey, don't be alarmed either by a spirit or even if someone is telling you things. And then he says this, or a letter. Whoa. A letter seeming to be from us. What's Paul saying? Someone's out there playing games. Someone out there pretending to be us. Someone's out there is writing, you know, First uh, Thessalonians one point one. <laughs> Said, oh, by the way, we we found this letter from Paul and Timothy and Silas, and here's what it says. Well, what did it say? Look, he tells us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, remember, this church is very young, very young church, but they had a wonderful teacher in the Apostle Paul, but he wasn't there that long, but he, he taught them thoroughly. So he says, listen, I've taught you everything you need to know concerning the Antichrist, concerning the end times. And you know what? He tells them, the day of the Lord will come, it's going to come, but don't be stressed out about it. Because the day of the Lord is a day of what? Judgment. Remember? We talked about this. The day of judgment is coming. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. Well, as believers, are we under the judgment of God? No. Who took our judgment? Christ on the cross. So it wouldn't make any sense that we would hang around for the judgment of God to fall on a wicked and sinful earth. And so Paul has already discussed this in 1 Thessalonians to them. He said, listen, this day is coming, the day of the Lord, where there will be severe judgment on the face of the earth. But don't worry about it because you're not going to be here. Because God is going to come down by Christ and he's going to call you to be with him. He's going to snatch you off the face of the earth before this ever even gets started. Well, someone, maybe in their church, maybe not, we don't know, but somebody told them, you know what? You think you're going to escape? What are you doing? You're dealing with persecution. And they were. This church was being severely persecuted. So somebody all of a sudden comes up with this letter. Hey, you know what? I think uh, uh, the Apostle Paul and Tim, you forgot to read this part. That you're in the day of the Lord now. Can you imagine? I mean, they sat under Paul and he convinced them the day of the Lord, they weren't going to be there. They weren't going to be part of that judgment. They were going to be raptured out because God gave them that incredible uh, revelation for the first time there in, in 1 Thessalonians about the, day, about the rapture about how Christ was going to come back and take the church off the face of the earth. So they're thinking, okay, we got this. This would be, this would be great. We'll be out of here. But then the persecution starts to get a little worse, and all of a sudden somebody comes up and says, hey, you know what, I, I, I don't think you read this part from Paul. He says, you're in the day of the Lord. Wow. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, they were worried that maybe, what about our dead people our dead believers who already died. Well, are they going to miss the rapture? Are they going to miss this? Are they going to miss that? Remember that? And so it's very important 
that we realize that, you know what, they, they were very young, they were maturely taught, but they were still growing. And so they probably started to freak out. Thinking, wow, this letter's from Paul too. So Paul had to address it in short order. Because Timothy probably told him, hey, you know what? They're really struggling with their eschatology. They're really struggling with this day of the Lord thing. They think they're, they're in the time of God's judgment, and you told them just the opposite. So they're all confused. It seems unthinkable to us because the first letter, just a few weeks before, he taught them everything. And some of them were worried that they missed this rapture. And Paul writes and says, no, when the rapture comes, just to remind you, he says, what, the dead in Christ will rise first. You don't have to worry about your loved ones who believe in Jesus and they died. They will rise first. And then he says, what, you also, if you're still alive, when the Lord comes back in the clouds for his church, you also will be caught up together with him. So whether you're dead or whether you're alive, it's not going to matter. You will be rejoined with the Lord. You can't miss the rapture. It's impossible. So if you're a believer, you're either going to come out of the grave or you're just going to put on your little jets and go right up to heaven with everybody else. But you're not going to miss the rapture. And so Paul's trying to tell them, don't be stressed out over this. But they got sucked in by this letter and started believing, well, maybe the day of the Lord has come. Paul told them over and over again, you're not of the darkness, you're not of the night, you're children of the light. The day of the Lord isn't something you're involved in. It involves the judgment of God. Christ paid for your judgment. He took your judgment. And so someone under the spirit of the Antichrist infected these people with the idea that they were in the day of the Lord. And so he has to review with them. I told you in the first letter, you'd, you're going to be raptured out of there. I told you in the first letter that the day of the Lord is for people of the night, for people who are not believers. It doesn't even make any sense that you would belong in the day of the Lord. And now he says, let me give you another reason why you can't be in the day of the Lord. And look at what he says. He says it very clearly. He says, For that day will not come, this day of the Lord, unless, what? The rebellion comes first. The man and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he says, first of all, you know what? You're going to be raptured. Secondly, it's not even for you because it's for unbelievers. And thirdly, uh, the Antichrist hasn't come yet. You can't be in the day of the Lord because it's the Antichrist that triggers the beginning of the day of the Lord. That's what triggers it, when the Antichrist is revealed. See, and that's why in the coming weeks we're going to talk about this more. But a lot of Christians say, well, who is the Antichrist? I don't know. And guess what? Nobody else knows either. Why? Because he hasn't been revealed yet. It's that simple. And when he is revealed, guess what? We're not going to be here. So uh, don't get all consumed with this. 
I mean, there are people, 666, okay, well, who's, who's name, you know, politicians, how many syllables do they have? How many letters do they have in their name? It's crazy. I mean, people just go over the top, and people are coming out with all kind of theories of who the Antichrist is. Now, we do believe he's going to come out of this, this Roman government somewhere someday. We do believe that. The scripture indicates that. But we don't know who he is. We don't know when he's going to be revealed. But it's very interesting to me that uh, you're going to find out in this passage that the Antichrist is really a very, very important, evil, wicked individual who actually is the commencement of the day of the Lord. So they had all this confusion going on. And so he says in verse 5, remember when I was with you, I told you these things. I taught you all this. And, and by the way, this chapter, chapter 2, it really gives us more specifics about the Antichrist than any other chapter in the New Testament. And it's not that long. But it gives us so many different details the one that comes close to it are in Revelation, right? It talks about the Antichrist there. We're going to referring, be referring to that in the weeks to come. But the question is posed, you know, if they already knew this, why is, he, why is he going over this? Where did they get their information from? And to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to go back to Daniel. So I would ask you, in preparation for our study next week, like I said, this is just an introduction to this. We're just scraping the surface, okay? And um, it's important that you understand. But I would, I would ask you to read Daniel, the book of Daniel if you can, but read Daniel 9, chapter 9 specifically, before our study next week. Because you're going to be blown away by what we discover as we walk through these prophecies. And how exact and how precise. And I'm not talking in a general sense. I'm talking down to the day. You're going to see it. And that's the nature of our God, is it not? Our God is a precise God. You know, he, he's, he's a very exact God. He, he knows exactly how to take history and mold it and shape it to fit his plan. It's not the other way around. We don't live in a world where God is reacting to what's going on. Sometimes we believe that, don't we? Even with the chaos in Texas yesterday and everything. Did God know that was going to happen? Yes. Definitely. He didn't catch him by surprise. Why? Because there's wickedness and there's evil in the world. We have to understand that. We have to believe that. Because that prepares us for what's coming. Even though we won't be here for the day of the Lord, okay, we do still have to prepare ourselves spiritually and even physically, I believe, for these end times which are quickly approaching. I mean, you, you know, all you have to do is pick up the newspaper and start reading it. It's like, you know, you're, you're reading Revelation or something. It's crazy. And you see the whole world scenario beginning to form and to shape. And what's it leading to? It's leading to a what? A one world government. And the only thing, experts say, the only thing that's really standing in our way, 
are those pesky little conservative Christians. Well, guess what? One day, we'll be taken out of the way. And then all hell is really going to break loose here. And you don't want to be here, trust me. And that's why the gospel says you don't have to be here. That Christ came to pay the payment, the penalty for your sin. You know, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. Very clearly. But God has offered you a reprieve. He's offered you someone who has died in your place. He's offered you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants more than anything. He desires more than anything that you would understand here today your need for a Savior. Your need to be saved from your sins. I don't even need to convince you you have sins. You know you have sins. We all have sins. None of us here are perfect. And we have fallen short of God's standard, which is, by the way, perfection. Jesus told teachers, well, how are we going to get to heaven? You have to be perfect because my Father in heaven is perfect. Well, who can do that? Exactly. No one. So guess what? I'm going to give you my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to come down and he's going to live a perfect life because he's God for 33 years. And then he's going to willingly give up his life and he's going to go to a cruel cross and he's going to voluntarily, nobody killed Christ. He volunteered his life for ours. Could Jesus have saved his life? Definitely. But he couldn't have saved his life and saved ours. He can't do both. Even though he was God, he couldn't do it. It would be impossible. So he made a choice. I'm going to give up my life for yours. I'm going to die on a cross so you don't have to. And by the way, even if you chose to crucify yourself and die, you're not perfect. <laughs> so it wouldn't even, it'd be a waste. You know, there are people that live their lives, they're constantly, you know, crawling on their knees on glass and whipping themselves, thinking somehow that's earning grace before a holy God. That doesn't do anything. That doesn't do a thing. The only way that we are forgiven of our sins, the only way that we have coverage in any way is to put our faith, our trust in the one who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, God does something unspeakable. He does something that we, we can't logically understand. He takes us who are unrighteous, who are unworthy, who are sinful human beings, and he says, you know what? Because you put your faith, your trust in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to clothe you in his righteousness. And so when he looks at us, he doesn't see sinful Steve, Con Steve Converse any longer because I put my faith and trust in Christ. Who does he see? He sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm clothed in his righteousness. I'm not righteous in and of myself. None of us are. That's why we need a savior. So I pray that as we conclude here this morning, you would understand your need of a savior if you're not saved yet. Because we all need a savior. And those of us who are saved, I pray that you would understand that in the coming weeks as we entertain this this eschatology and the end times and everything that you would really pray that God would first of all prepare my heart to teach these things but also to pray your, prepare your heart to receive what the word of God says. And I think you'll be surprised in some of 
what we learn together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for this place in which we can um, minister your gospel to hearts that are hungry, who want to learn and grow. And Lord, we pray that as we embark on this study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Lord, that you would give us all wisdom beyond our own ability through the Spirit of Christ, that you would allow us to see what you desire us to learn and apply to our lives. Father, that we would begin to prepare our, our hearts for these end times that are quickly approaching. And Lord, if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today might be the day that the blinders are taken off. Lord, we can't make people Christians. Lord, that that takes your doing. You, You call them to yourself. You draw them. You give them the ability to understand your truth. Because we can't understand it on our own. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that action in their hearts even now, that you would show them their need of a Savior, that they would be willing to confess you as their Lord and Savior, which means they're not in charge anymore, you are. And you're living for a greater cause. You're living to please God, your Creator. And you understand that he came, he died willingly. He was buried, he was risen on the third day. And you're saying here today, I want to follow this individual. I want to follow Christ. I want to commit my life to him so that my sins too can be forgiven. That's a prayer that Jesus will answer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll answer that prayer if it's prayed from a sincere heart. And he'll transform you. He'll make you a new person in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would just bless this coming week. Pray that we would do diligently in our efforts to commit ourselves to study your word and to pray and to witness for those. Lord, the time is short. The time is definitely short. And Lord, we pray also for our fellowship time across the way and the food. We ask you bless it to our bodies. We thank you. Pray as we close in a song that you would just lift our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.